All right, well, welcome, glad you're here. Um, let's stand and read our shorter catechism question for the week. And then I'll read Psalm 8 following that. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, in his own image and in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness to rule over the other creatures. Actually, our devotional reading for today was from Psalm 8, so let me read that as well. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made and set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather together to again look to your word. Uh, thank you for this uh, catechism question, just the realization that you have made us in your image with the potential to know you and the calling to serve you to represent you in all the earth, even as, as prophet, priest, and king. And we thank you for the greater Adam, the second Adam, who is that perfect prophet, priest, and king, that as we gather in his name, as we seek to know uh, your word, Lord, through his spirit, may you impress it upon our hearts and minds tonight. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. We're starting chapter 2 of Ephesians today, and just a summary of chapter 1. Following uh, the opening welcome or greeting by Paul, there was a great benediction of praise to God uh, for the spiritual blessings that come to believers in Christ. Uh, we've noted that these spiritual blessings were numerous, and the fact that they were described as spiritual blessings and kept in heavenly places did not mean that they were just kind of out there, ethereal, or limited to certain parts of existence, but the, the word spiritual means spirit-given, spirit-directed. So blessings apply to all of life. We're actually going to see tonight how that applies to death as well. Um, so then after the uh, great prayer of praise to God for the blessings, Paul then uh, goes into a great prayer petition for the believers in Ephesus. Uh, it's a prayer for their ongoing spiritual growth. Again, spiritual, not limited to any one part of life. Uh, and, and it's related. The uh, praise to God leads to great, confident, bold prayers for God's specific work. So that's the end of chapter, uh, <clears throat> chapter 1, and that ended with a... Uh, statement about the reign of Christ over all. And so now as we start in Ephesians 2, verse 1, we read, and you. And that's kind of a significant, deep transition because it now is going to a personal emphasis following that, that broad, glorious emphasis of Christ reigning over all at the end of chapter 1. So, and you, turning the lens and the focus to individual believers. 
you were dead. Paul writes, the word for dead is necros in Greek. We get necrology from, from that word. Uh, it's the universal condition of all people, and it's going to be spelled out in the, in the phrases that follow in this letter. It's the battle of the sin, the flesh, and the devil. And the idea here of being dead is man is totally unable to do the thing that he is required to do. I think that was me. I just bumped, bumped myself. That or the roof is coming down. <laughs> we had a lot of rain. Uh, no. This, uh, we think of total depravity, and you can think of that as total inability, uh, the, the uh, lack of capacity for a person to please God and to do what God has required. That's what it means to be to be dead. Um, and it's not good, right? As an old joke goes, three, uh, three clergy were uh, meeting together and they had a discussion. What would you like to be said about you at your funeral? And the first person goes and said, well, I'd like maybe to be remembered for the things I did. And a second person went and said, well, I'd like to be remembered for uh, my family and the great relationships that we had, and then the third guy said, yeah, I don't think that's it at all. If I was, uh, you know, laid out at my funeral, the thing I'd most want to hear is, he moved. So, it's better to be alive, right? <laughs> and the idea of dead means what? You don't move. You don't think. You don't raise your hand. You don't come forward. You are unable to respond. You're unable to do the things that God requires. Does that mean... People that are dead uh, can't do anything good. Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, people who are spiritually dead can do things that are relatively good by human standards, but they aren't ultimately good. Um, I should have looked up the definition of good, <laughs> good works in the Catechism or in the Westminster Confession. It's a wonderful statement. It really clarifies this idea of, of good works and what aren't good works. But even if someone does noble things, they don't do them with the right motivation, which is to honor God. Ultimately, that is not a good work. So when Paul says a person is spiritually dead, they are not able to do the good that is looked at by God, judged by God, as, as redeeming, as what is ultimately pleasing to him. Um, so that is the condition. Uh, we, you, Paul writes, were dead in the trespasses, We've seen this word in Ephesians 1. This is the word of, of turning away. And uh, you think of trespassing, right? It's, it's not being where you're supposed to be. It's crossing a boundary. It's, a, it's an intentional misstep. Um, and sins, a second word for sin. And this word for sin, you see, is missing the mark. Probably have heard of that before. But the root of the problem in both of those definitions of sin is it reflects deadness. And it is defined in relation to God. So just as what is good is defined in relation to God, so is what is sin. Uh, if there is no God, if there is no revelation of God and standard of God, law of God, then you really can't say that a person has stepped out of bounds or that they've missed the mark. So these words for sin, trespass and sin, show that to be dead is to be not in relation with God. The uh, next section uh, is a place, one of the places in the Bible where we get the phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, if you've ever heard of that before. And that phrase is not just 
you know, something someone imposed on the Scriptures, it jumps right out in what we're about to see. So, for instance, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Literally is the phrase, walking around. And so what we see here is that deadness is a way of life. And uh, it shows the powerlessness of people to change. So when you think of walking, walked, um, you're not physically dead, right? I mean, so when Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, um, you were still breathing, right? You were still able to move. You walked. Um, and this is why it's really, really important. One of the highlights I said from Ephesians chapter 1 and, uh, and that section was, what does the word spiritual mean? When we talked about spiritual blessings, keep coming back to this. Sorry if it's redundant, but that is so important to define properly because that's going to clarify what spiritual deadness is. Um, there's not just a portion of us that's dead. It's all of us. Uh, that is every portion and dimension of us. Paul loves this phrase, walking. Uh, he uses it in different letters, but it's really significant in Ephesians in the second half of the letter, which is chapters 4 to 6, uh, Paul uses this word to mark the different segments. So there's six segments in the second half of Ephesians. And remember, the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 to 3, is the doctrinal section primarily. Chapters 4 to 6, the second half, is the application section. So in this application section, Paul uses walk or walking um, to break up each of the closing sections. So, for instance, Ephesians 4.1, walk in unity, and the passage on unity follows. Ephesians 4.17, walk in holiness, section on holiness follows. Ephesians 5.1, walk in love, section on love follows. So, you, uh, you get the idea. So, this in which you once walked following the course of this world, and these are the phrases that are summarized by the, the word the world in relation to the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you were following the course of this world, literally according to the age of the world. Uh, and so you get a sense of time frame here. Uh, and this is the time frame into which we are all born. And what's true of this time frame? Everyone who is born and lives apart from Christ, this season of God's, God's timing, um, is following the course of this world. They are dead in trespasses and sin. Uh, they are walking in the path and the pattern that uh, does not draw them to God or pleases God. Um, uh, sometimes you may have heard this Latin phrase, non posse, non pacare, which simply means it's not possible not to sin. So ever since Adam, that is the course of this world or the age of this world. Because in this age, everyone finds it not possible not to sin. Now when a person comes to Christ and believes in Jesus, they get a new Latin phrase. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> and the new Latin phrase is no longer non posse, non pecare but rather, passe non pecare. It's 
in Christ, and only because of His grace, it is possible not to sin. Uh, does that mean you're going to be perfect? Not at all. But it does mean uh, you're not going to be dead. You're not going to have everything you do be defined as uh, a shortcoming, missing the mark, and a breaking with God. Okay, so that's, uh, and then we read in Galatians 1 verse 4, uh, speaking of Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. Again, just another way of saying, what is the time frame? What is the age in which you live? Apart from Christ, it is that age, that existence, where nothing we can do can please God. Nothing we can do can be defined as good. Um, we are consistently dead, spiritually dead. So that's the world, and then we have the devil, and the, that order we normally hear, if you've heard before, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, this passage does have a little different order, because the next thing we hear about is the devil. So it says, following the prince of the power of the air. So there is a ruler of the realm of death. There is a ruler who is uh, influencing this uh, present evil age and the course of this, this world. It's not like we just float through life without this outside influence. First um, John 5:19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And you can think of other passages, I'm sure, as well, that talk about uh, the evil one, who is the devil, Satan, who has uh, peculiar powers and authorities in this present age. So again, it's important to think of time, the age, um, and then also as well as realm. Satan, the evil one, has a kingdom. He has a realm, a sphere of darkness. We are born not only into the age of this world and its brokenness and its, our inability to, to be right, to not sin, but also we are born into that realm. We are born into the realm of darkness. We are born into the realm of the kingdom of the evil one. And uh, it continues on, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, that in the ESV, the spirit is not capitalized. I think it could probably be one of those both ands. I mean, it could be the evil spirit, uh, but it also then is at work in us, so it becomes our spirit. Um, all are disobedient, all are dead, all are under the ruler of the darkness and the present evil age. So that's the devil. And then there is the flesh in terms of the world, the flesh, and the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Uh, so if you want to, I know that's all underlined, but you can underline again the all. We all once lived. So we are dead, but we are living in death. We are living in that realm of darkness. Um, and we lived according to following the passions of our flesh. 
Um, passions can be translated and used in the Bible in good ways. But the problem is, and the flesh isn't always negative, uh, but here it obviously is meant to imply that the desires we have are according to that which pleases our, uh, our physical appetites. Um, so passions and desires are misdirected. And this helps think about um, just, in a way, human freedom. Um, we are free to do what we want. Did you know that? <laughs> um, the challenge is when we are spiritually dead, we're not able to do what God defines as good. And, of course, sometimes when you think of these, uh, these teachings and doctrines of grace and even just this, the nature of, of spiritual death, uh, don't get into it tonight, but the idea of being born in Adam, um, it may seem unfair. Uh, but the point is uh, we are free to do what we want, our, but the problem is our passions and desires are not that which are directed to God and to please God. So if you get into a great debate about free will and someone's hammering you on this, just say, uh, and I think a lot of great uh, leaders in, in the Christian faith have emphasized this, is we do what we want, and we have the freedom to do what we want. The problem is our desires. So, you know, sometimes people just use the analogy of, I put before you a glass of water and a glass of antifreeze and said, you are free to choose. Our sin nature always says, that antifreeze looks really good. <laughs> I don't want the water. Uh, I want the antifreeze. And, uh, and so it is that, that fallen, distorted desires that, uh, that keep us in spiritual death. Uh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Uh, again, this is all kind of building on the, the initial thing of being dead. Our sin is rooted in the flesh, the body, and the mind. Uh, so Paul's um, elaborating, but he's elaborating in a very important way. Again, showing that sin permeates all of our existence. And just like those spiritual blessings, um, spiritual death is not limited to certain areas. Um, so to be spiritually dead means our body, our mind, our desires, uh, they are all impacted. And again, when we think of that phrase, total depravity, which means total inability, uh, the, the word total is important because it's, it's the permeation. Um, and through history, people debate everything, but this has been a pretty significant thing. I, I think uh, probably with uh, Catholic theologians, um, and I'm not an expert, but as I understand it, there's a sense that, that the mind isn't as fallen as... Uh, the rest of our humanity. And so there's the ability to, uh, to reason and to um, convince people about faith because of a lack of fallenness in the mind. Well, just like fallenness in everything. Remember what we said. Um, because we are dead and we are totally depraved, that doesn't mean that everything we do is depraved. Uh, or as I think John Gerstner used to say, there's, there's room for deprovement. Uh, <laughs> you could be worse. Uh, but again, it's like all this relative good and bad in the human standard is 
far. It, it's still in the realm of death. It's still in the realm of this world. It's still in the realm of the kingdom of darkness, all right? Um, so again, in terms of our existence, our mind can think noble thoughts just like our will can do noble things. But apart from Christ, it is still death, it is still sin, uh, it doesn't honor God, and it is still reflective of our, our uh, separation from God. And then finally, uh, wrapping up this uh, verses 1 to 3, which is the classic bad news before we get to the good news, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, you get the idea of this universal scope of, of death and depravity. Um, the, the word for children, I mean, there is, is like infants, babies. It's, it's the techna in Greek, little ones. And so it's not even just like sons and daughters. We're talking about uh, we were ch- by nature children of wrath. So if you think of like, and we've got cute little ones, don't we? But, but the idea is even the cutest little ones are still by nature spiritually dead. Uh, no age of innocence, no time frame where someone is not spiritually dead, born in the kingdom of darkness. David wrote in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean that the conceiving was evil. It just meant, means that what was conceived, uh, the life of the child, even in the womb, was in that spiritual death. Any, uh, let me just pause, I guess, see any comments or reflections on the, this bad news of verses 1 to 3? I just want to really emphasize the universality of sin, the deadness. Um, oh, the wrath. I didn't mention wrath. Yeah, that's the worst problem, right? That's the greatest consequence. Uh, it's not good that there's distortions and things aren't you know, operating the way they should in the world. But our greatest problem is we are enemies with God, and we are under his just judgment. So the right response for God would be to judge us. All right, starting at verses, look at, I don't know if we get all the way through verse 7, but we'll at least start into it. But starting at verse 4, we have the two best words in the Bible. Do you ever wonder what the two best words in the Bible? Don't look down. <laughs> but God, right? People have said that many times. This is, uh, this is God's response to our problem. And this is good news because if it wasn't for but God, we would be justly under God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, uh, it is the character of God that is underlying his response to our need, our problem, and leads to his gracious work of salvation. Um, So that's his character. Because of the great love with which he loved us and the disposition of God towards his people is love, and he acts lovingly because of his uh, love for his, for his people. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, uh, our condition does not determine God's response, right? Um, 
And this repeats what we read earlier about man being dead in the earlier verses. So, God didn't look at us and see something in us. We were dead. God didn't look at us and see some potential in us for what he did in terms of his his mercy and his love. This is pure grace. What comes next are um, the what I call the three great withs. <laughs> There's uh, three verbs, all with a prefix with. Uh, so these are kind of compound words. They're smashed together, uh, and sometimes they're even like three or four words all smashed together. But they all begin with with. And uh, we're going to see that the first is that we are alive with Christ, we are raised with Christ, and... This is interesting. We are seated with Christ. So, um, even when we were dead in our trespasses, uh, made us alive together with Christ. So, the words uh, made us alive together with are actually all one word, but it begins with a prefix uh, soon. um, And that is just, it can be with together or even together with. So we were made alive together with Christ. Um, And this is a passage, or this is a a theme. We see other places in the Bible. For instance, notice Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him, that is Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this is the idea of being made alive together with Christ. We live because Jesus lives. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave on that first Easter Sunday, uh, he would not be alive, we would not be alive. We would still be dead, um, still be in the kingdom of darkness. Um, uh, The next phrase is, by grace you have been saved, the work to redeem us. Uh, is totally of God's free grace. Now, that's going to be spelled out more uh, next time, I guess when we get to verses 8 to 10, uh, where the nature of that grace and its relationship to human works is spelled out by Paul, but he highlights right here, right in the middle, that we are saved by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Again, because we're dead. (laughs) And nothing we would do. Uh, looked particularly attractive or was useful. Uh, It was by grace. So the second with, uh, that we are raised with Christ and raised us up with him. Again, one compound word with a prefix beginning with that soon, with. uh, We are raised up with Christ. Uh, So we are raised, and the idea of being raised up is to be raised to heaven. Why would we be raised to heaven? Because we're with Christ, (laughs) and that is where Christ is. Remember the opening first chapter, 11 times Paul uses this phrase, in Christ. So this is truly central. We are with Christ. We are in Christ. If Christ is in heaven and you are in Christ, you are in heaven. That's why you have spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Again, not because it's abstract or just part of certain categories. It involves all of life. But this idea of in Christ, in heaven, 
means that these are secure truths. These are uh, secure blessings. The, um, did I read Ephesians 1.20 yet? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Um, again, that was from chapter 1. And then the third with, that we are seated with Christ. Uh, so, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, kind of, in a way, almost redundant. I mean, we are with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But the idea is, the only way we get there is because we are in Christ. And when we believe in Christ, we are united with him and one with him. So it's not redundant. It's, it's the only way you get to that place where Jesus is. Now, the idea of seating is really significant. Um, it's something I really haven't uh, thought of and, and uh, reflected on anywhere near as much as I, sh- I should. But really, the, the seating of Jesus completes the glorification of Jesus by the Father, and it confirms his authority over every power. So if you think of the life and ministry of Jesus, and sometimes we we'll talk about the cross or the death of Jesus. Um, I think we've said in Ephesians 1 that those are really summary terms that cover the whole of all that Jesus did, or even say the work of Jesus. Well, what was that? Well, everything from his incarnation, living a perfect life, calling his followers, starting the church, uh, dying on the cross. You know, that was all part of it, his ministry. Uh, again, sometimes summarized as the work of Christ, the cross of Christ. But then comes the recognition and the response of God the Father to the effectiveness and the completeness of the work of Christ. And so several things happen, just like there were several things in the work of Christ, several things happen in the glorification of Jesus and the affirmation of that work uh, that follow. But what would they be? Well, first, he didn't stay dead, right? (laughs) Jesus rose from the grave. That was a sign. Well done, good and faithful servant. Then, after a short interlude, Jesus ascended. He was raised up. And then, this is the part I think I often miss, maybe others do as well, he was seated. Sometimes this is described as the session of Christ. So if you're Presbyterian, you think, great, they had a session meeting. (laughs) That's not what it means, other than the word session literally means to seat. So, I know, Presbyterian meetings do a lot of sitting or something. But the, uh, the seating of Christ is part of this package of Christ's work being affirmed and blessed by the Father. So we get the idea, it's clear, that when Jesus is raised and he is seated, he is given authority. He rules and he reigns. And that is just not something for the future. He has a rule and a reign over his church, but even more broadly, over the whole universe and a kingdom that he's building. So notice Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, again from the first chapter, speaking of his being raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things under his the Son's feet, and gave him, gave to Christ, 
as head over all things to the church. So, so that is what it means, in a sense, to be seated. Again, probably a lot to think about how Jesus is finished his earthly ministry, but now ruling and reigning, and that is highlighted by the fact that he is seated. Now, what does it mean that we are seated with Christ? I'm sure I don't have half a, half a clue. <laughs> but here's a few things, right? I'm sure there are more riches to that idea of being seated with Christ than I've ever thought of. But here's at least some of what it has to mean, because we know what Jesus is doing in his session. Believers share in Jesus' mission of building his church. That's what Jesus is doing as he is seated, and we are seated with him. We must at least somehow share with that. Notice Matthew 16. I never thought of it this way, but I think it applies This is um, when Peter professes faith in Christ, uh, professes that uh, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus responds, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there's obviously great debate of who who are these keys given to. Is it Peter and his successors, or is it uh, those who adhere to the right confession? Uh, of faith that Jesus is Lord, that He is the Messiah. I certainly believe it's that latter one. Uh, but we, if that is true, um, we are given the keys of the kingdom. Not heard that one before. I think that's wind. You do hear interesting things. I heard some real weird thumping one day, and I finally walked out these doors out here. There's a, a kid shooting a lacrosse ball up against the wall. I said, I said, you can't do that. So he left. And I don't know if you know, we got some problems with some of the windows and things over here. So I thought, shoot, I should have told him to aim for the window. Maybe we could have got a good insurance claim and (laughs) resolved that issue. Oops, this is being taped, isn't it? Pay no attention. So anyway, yes, we, we share in the mission of Jesus building his church. We also, there's a great sense of security here, right? We are secure. Last, a couple of times ago, we talked about what it means to be sealed by the Spirit. Um, to be seated and to be in the heavenly places means that, that we are in the most secure spot. Uh, we are sealed, uh, protected, preserved by the Spirit. We have His mark and His imprint upon us. Uh, also, we are, through Christ and in Christ, uh, tied to the greatest power and authority in the universe. Right? If Christ is seated in heaven, far above all rule and authority. Paul elaborates what, you know, there's nothing above Christ, no greater power. That's part of him being seated. But if we are seated in Christ, somehow we are secure in that uh, relationship, and we uh, know that there is no power or no authority that can be over us because we are in him. Now, having said that, we still live in this present evil age. Um, you know, we're, uh, these are blessings, these are truths that are definitely secure and real, but we don't have the fullness of them yet. And that gets to one of the principles we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1, and that is the already but not yet principle. Um, when we 
We're thinking about the blessings that we have. We enjoy them in, in part, but we don't have the fullness of them yet, do we? And there will only be the, the fullness of those, those blessings Paul writes about in Ephesians 1 uh, when we are with the Lord in the wholeness of who we are. Uh, so we are uh, spiritually united to him. We are seated with him because we've been raised with him um, and made alive with him in his resurrection. Uh, but we will never be fully alive. We will never be fully free from the darkness of this world, the powers and threats of this world, until we are with Christ. Uh, Leaking into verse 7, and we'll just kind of highlight this and leave it there. It says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Um, So already, what does that mean? It's kind of Paul's helping them lean forward a bit, right? That that there are coming ages. There's there's more to come. Uh, The fullness isn't quite here. That doesn't mean it hasn't started. In fact, that's interesting. uh, The word for ages is plural. So it's not not just like someday there'll be a kingdom and God's people will be secure and maybe there'll be another kingdom after that in heaven and we don't have to worry about all those potential phases and stages. Paul's saying the ages, you know, the ages are starting then in Christ um, and they're going to continue on and maybe there'll be a couple more epics and things until Christ uh, consummates and completes all his work on earth. We don't need to worry about that, um, at least not what here is here. It's the, the key is that these wonderful truths are now, and yet also they will continue on so that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In fact, how do we know they're now? Because we know the riches of God's grace are evident now. uh, The riches of God's grace are not going to happen only at a future date. Uh, They are evident now as God forgives people, brings them into uh, his kingdom, and makes them part of his church. Um, Forgives their sin, deals with all those issues that we saw related to, uh, to being dead. So... So next time, we didn't do justice to verse 7, but that'll lead into 8, 9, and 10, which Paul now focuses, will focus more on the grace of God as it relates to uh, human works, and uh, that'll be a good chunk in its own right. I had high hopes of making it all the way to 10 tonight, but my voice isn't going to hold out, and actually my sheet ran out of space, so... We'll just have to say that's the Lord's leading (laughs) to wrap it up there.